Hey everyone, this is Zach with Vernacular Podcast. If you've been a longtime listener of Vernacular, you know that Vernacular is more than just one podcast show. It's actually a network of shows. So the Vernacular Podcast Network includes a couple of others. One of those is Third String. That's one that I host with a couple of other people. And that focuses on sports. And then there's another podcast that is launching very shortly, and that's going to be hosted by Josh and Maureen Goldman, a husband-wife duo. And that's going to be all about pop culture. That's called The Popped Cast. And you can find that right now wherever you get your podcast. We're dropping the first episode soon. But if you subscribe now, you can make sure to get the first one when it does drop. And you can listen to a 60-second teaser right now about what the show is going to be all about. In the meantime... I mentioned those podcasts because today we have something special. It is a conversation between me, Pete LeCleed, who is my co-host on Third String Podcast, and Josh Goldman, one of those hosts of the podcast. And we're talking about the new biography of Tiger Woods and what it means for being a father and being a parent. The reason we wanted to do this now is because this is especially appropriate given Father's Day this weekend. And the book gives us, as you'll soon hear in this conversation, Lots of reasons to explore what it means to be a father, what it means to be a parent, how you can father your child well, and, uh, and, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes that the tiger's father did. So, and, and I mentioned this throughout the conversation, but I don't want this to be a conversation about throwing stones. This is three guys talking about a great athlete whose father in many ways failed him. And this is three guys who don't want to fail our kids in a similar way. So uh, take that for what it's worth. It's a really good conversation. I think we talk about some really important things. This is part one. Uh, you can uh, stay on this feed for part two. Or if you're interested, head over to Third String Podcast to hear part two there. I'll be posting parts one and two on this feed and on the Third String feed. Uh, in the meantime, though, I hope you enjoy. All right, I'm joined now by Pete LeCleed and Josh Goldman. Guys, it's great to have you on here. I'm really excited to talk about this biography of Tiger Woods. I think we can pretty accurately call it the defining biography. I know you guys really enjoyed it. There's a lot in here to unpack. So let me let me pitch this to you first, Pete. I want to hear you answer this as well, Josh. But just give me your initial 30-second impressions of the book. So Honestly, I, I don't think it even took me 20 to 25 pages into this book to realize that this is the most confident biography I have ever read that is not a first or second person account at some different point. The, the research that these, these guys have done is just fantastic in this book. Um, and it, it makes you wonder a couple times as you're going through it exactly how did they know exactly what Tiger said if they never got the interview with Tiger? How did they know exactly what his dad was saying in, in this very, very specific moment in time. But I actually found myself, and this is something uh, Josh can attest that I didn't do much of in high school either, is I went to the notes quite a bit to look and see what the references were. And the the bibliography on this book is just incredible. So I, I think that the confidence and the way that this biography uh, is, is almost so detailed that it, it makes you not even want to question it, but at the same time, you're very, very interested in the sources on these. And you look through the sources and it's it's something like 80 pages long. It, it feels like when they're when they're rattling out all those sources, but just the incredible confidence and just the, the way that they give you the feeling of being on the inner circle with Tiger Woods the entire time. Even a lot of his inner circle was not interested in participating in this book. Uh, I thought it, it was really, really incredible to to read this book. And 
and we'll we'll dive into the the personalities and the, the interesting conversations between them two. But I was just really struck by how intimate this book was, really from start to finish, and how I really felt like I was going through some of these conversations and adventures with Tiger, with his dad, with Elin, with some of the managers at Nike, uh, and it, it was it was just an incredible read that for. 400 pages, it went very, very quickly on my end. And I think it's because the book was so detailed and so unbelievably well-researched. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with you. I, I found myself completely engrossed by the story almost from page one. I think the authors write very well. And to your point, they, they just source everything incredibly well. And it's obvious that they've done so much background going into this book. I think they mentioned over 400 interviews that they conducted that went into this book and and read everything that they could get their hands on literally about Tiger Woods. So that definitely showed and I thought I, I thought that alone made this the defining biography of Tiger Woods. In a way, like you said, it's just so confident in a way that nobody else has done that I've seen. But Josh, what do you think? Yeah, I also was very impressed with the research. So I'm glad you pointed that out, Pete. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about the book was when I first picked it up, I thought to myself, you know, Tiger Woods is only 42 years old and we have a biography of him already. Typically, you think about people who've lived their whole lives. But really, it, you know, when you think about it, Tiger has lived what seems like several lives within his 42 years, which obviously makes for a very compelling book. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was, in addition to the research, the story was told um, in a linear fashion. So you really got from the beginning of his life tour to the present essentially and sometimes that's not that exciting you know but but with tiger you really need that background of his early life to understand what happens later and and how that all ties in and so where sometimes i think the linear storytelling approach isn't as fascinating as maybe something that bounces around and it's and it has a little bit more mystery because to be honest most people know the the highlights of Tiger Woods' career. You know, they know that he won the 1997 Masters. They know that he has 14 majors. They know that he has that he has 79 PGA Tour wins. But you know, even still, going through just from the time when he was born and even before that to learn a little bit about his parents, just to the present, is just still a compelling narrative. So I found that really interesting. And and to sum it up in just one sentence. You know, my take on the book is that it's a portrait of a broken man. And I think we'll get into that a little bit more, but that was my takeaway. Yeah. And I thought the portrait was masterfully done in part because it so effectively combined many different stories about Woods' life. And Tiger Woods is is a character who we all knew about growing up because he, I would say, I would argue maybe, maybe uh, with LeBron as the only person who, who can eclipse Woods in this claim, but the greatest athlete of our generation, right? And and LeBron kind of LeBron came of age after after we did, I think, or as we did, I, I guess would be more accurate. Um, but Tiger was there as the athlete when we were growing up, right? So when we were kids, we knew what weekends Tiger was playing. And when we were kids, we'd open up the sports section and there was Tiger having won his latest major, right? Um and but but in that way, we only saw the headline Tiger. And we didn't see the tiger that we get glimpses of in this book. So what vignettes or maybe what singular anecdote from the book most stands out to you? Yeah. So I picked out a part of the book um, that's, that's about 
a quarter of the way through, and it's talking about his third U.S. amateur title. Zach, I mentioned this to you when we spoke earlier, but you know this this whole story about in his three U.S. amateurs that he won all three, he he had a come from behind victory, and the interesting thing about the third one is that he was up against this guy um, who was um, a sophomore at the University of Florida at the time, Steve Scott. And, you know, Steve Scott led going into the final round and Tiger Woods came back and beat him. And part of what was interesting about this was that what you got from this part of the the book was how different their lives were. Tiger was currently at the time at Stanford playing college golf as well, and they were competing at the U.S. Amateur, but their lives were just totally different. Tiger was on this, he was ready, he was on the verge of turning pro. Steve Scott was still in his early days in college golf. And I want to read just a little excerpt from the book. Um, This is in the chapter called Ramping Up. And this is more about Steve Scott than it is about Tiger, but I just, but I think it's such an interesting juxtaposition between the two. And the excerpt is Steve Scott went on to be a three time All American golfer at the University of Florida. In 1999, he was the number one ranked amateur in the country. That same year, he turned pro and married Christy, Christy Hommel, who um, I should point out was his caddy and also a golfer. The wedding took place on the 18th green at TPC Eagle Trace, a private golf club in their hometown of Coral Springs, Florida. They both cried when they exchanged vows. Scott said that marrying Hommel was the smartest decision he had ever made. Five years later, he made another big decision, to walk away from the grind of the Canadian and nationwide tours and focus on raising their two children. He turned toward instruction and eventually became the head PGA professional at Paramount Country Club a few miles outside of New York City. He and Christy celebrated their 18th wedding anniversary in 2017. He says, We really started Team Scott at the U.S. Amateur at Pumpkin Ridge. We've gone on to have a great life. I think I'm walking proof that you can win in life without winning. What I found so interesting about that little segment was the authors were talking about what these three people who'd lost a Tiger in the U.S. Amateurs had gone on to do was that this is just so emblematic of our society and of people these days. There's just this need, I think, in our culture that you need to win and you need to win and you need to win. And if you don't, you're a failure. But Steve Scott is just a perfect example of realizing that golf for him was just a game. It's what he did, but not who he was. It was his job, but he didn't let it define him. Now, he doesn't have millions of dollars and endorsement deals and fans, and books written about him. But for him, he found what was most important to him as a human person. And by all accounts presented here, he seems happy. And I would actually go out on a limb to say that though he would never, ever admit it, I would think that Tiger might actually be jealous of Steve Scott and what he has in life. And so I just found this a really interesting juxtaposition between these two people. So that was my favorite vignette from the book. Yeah, I, th- I think that's great. The uh, the Steve Scott quote that you read at the end there says a lot that you can win in life without winning. And I think that's a crucial insight that the authors just sort of let hang there in, in the air a little bit as you read it in the book. And I think they do so intentionally. 
But that's the key piece that you suggested that Tiger was missing from his whole narrative. And uh, I've thought a lot about this and how Tiger's father gave him this idea of winning. And if you look at Tiger's dad's book from 1997, Training a Tiger, A Father's Guide to Raising a Winner in Both Golf and Life, his singular aim was to help Tiger win on the golf course. And Steve Scott very clearly recognized that there was a lot more to life than that. And I think you're right that maybe maybe Tiger wouldn't wouldn't say it outright that he was jealous of what Steve Scott found in life. But Tiger Woods at this point in his life has nothing that n- none of the good things that Steve Scott values. And I think he's sad about that. And when you look at I, I did some more background on this and looked at the full text of the interview that Time magazine, uh, L- Lauren Rubenstein did with Tiger on his the eve of his 40th birthday. Tiger acknowledges that a little bit. He sort of he creeps towards that. This is in 2015. But he basically says he he realizes now that his kids are the most important thing in his life. And he never realized that before. So I think he, he I think he's coming closer. Although I think you're right, Josh, he would never say I'm jealous of Steve Scott, how he was able to hang up his golf shoes after a couple years and and focus on other things. I think Tiger probably cherishes all the majors that he won, the 79 tour victories, all of that. But I think at the same time, he's he's kind of come come around. It's just it's so interesting. There's another part in the book where he, he talk, they talk about him winning a tournament and he literally wouldn't let go of the trophy. He got in the car to yeah, leave that's and right. they said, they said, you can't, you're going to get your own. We need to keep that one right. here. So he was, he was obsessed with this idea of winning and the, you know, the physical thing that you got, the trophy that you got to go along with it. And, right. And there were some descriptions of his home too, how his trophies were all displayed yeah. for everyone to see. And he was very proud of them. Right. But it's just one of those things that it struck me when my wife's grandfather passed away a couple of years ago, he left behind a lot of things and he left behind things that we had given him as gifts that he'd never even used. And it just really drove home the point to me that when you die one day, none of that matters. None of the physical things that that you think are important in life are, you know, really matters in the end. You You can't take it with you, they say. And so this idea of Tiger Woods clutching a trophy and not letting go, you know, juxtaposed with Steve Scott and his family. And, you know, they, they went back to the course where he played Tiger with, with the kids and they took a selfie on, you know, on the hole where he made an amazing shot. I mean, those are the things, those memories that you're giving to your kids and those memories that you're creating for yourself. Those are the things that are going to last that, you know, you're building your legacy to last when you're gone. And I just found that so fascinating that that you're right. They just the authors sort of just leave these little pieces throughout that show you how his life was so different than than people who maybe realized earlier that this wasn't everything. I I think that's actually a great transition to the the thing that I wanted to bring up for our listeners who might be wondering if they should give this book a read. Is so I'm I'm not the the most diehard fan. I remember watching Tiger growing up, but it was nothing I went out of my way to do. So I remember bits and pieces of these masters. But as a non-golf guy, let me tell you what really hooked me and kind of the vignette that I look at. So Josh, I love that you said uh, you, um, I'm, I'm going to misquote you here, but where essentially he couldn't let go of, of any of the, the trophies and the awards he got. But what really struck me really through the first third of this book was how he couldn't let a win go and he couldn't let competition go, but he absolutely could let everyone who was who was close to him go at any given time, uh, and I think that's the part that I, I knew that Tiger had a lot of issues with the way that he handled people. His interpersonal skills were 
very noted as lacking. But what really stood out to me was the relationship with his high school girlfriend. So at this point, we're not even 50 pages into the book where where we really start to learn about her. Her name is Dina Gravel. She was a year ahead of, of Tiger uh, in high school. And they talk about that Tiger, because he was so focused on golf um, and grew up with a little bit of a lisp, uh, really struggled in the social circles because it seems to me that he didn't hang out with kids whatsoever. He was always on the golf course or with Earl, um, who his father, Earl, is not a guy who was known for um, being well-spoken or even being a nice man, that he used a lot of crass language when he instructed Tiger. Uh, he was very hard on Tiger, and Tiger just really didn't learn how to communicate with people. So in high school, he meets Dina, who is one of the few people who kind of takes him under her wing. And they talk about that he's going over to her house for dinner and how much he likes spending time with her family instead of his family because they're so much nicer. But as it goes on and on and she hangs with him, I mean, they talk about how she went to community college so that she could stay close to him. She begged him to go to UNLV, but his parents didn't want him to go to UNLV. She cared about Stanford was the better golf school. Exactly. She cared about him so deeply and tried to just support him that eventually when she was finally standing on the golf course and she starts getting a little attention from the media as being Tiger's girlfriend, he he really changes his entire persona and how he handles her. And what is even more interesting to me is the fact that his mom, it's pretty well noted, was was one of the big drivers that she could possibly be a distraction. I don't know if it was a distraction from necessarily his work ethic. We're just diverting so much attention um, for for Tiger that that she didn't want that. But overall, his mom and his dad find this way to to convince Tiger that that she doesn't belong in his inner circle. And I mean, she had been his one friend growing up, and he's he's okay with just walking away and just sending her this note. And all of a sudden, she's gone. The yes, most important to me that was the most amazing her, part in his life that it wasn't a face to face conversation. It was yeah, I'll just leave you this note. I'll pack your bag for you, right, and leave it there at the door for you to go. It, exactly, and they they talk about how deeply he loved her and how important she'd been. But when it came to what do your parents say and what's more important for golf, Tiger was okay walking away. No he question, can't let yeah. go of a trophy from a tournament when he's getting into a car, but he can walk away from the first love of his life. And y- you look at the way that this streams along throughout the entire novel it is novels not the, the right word for it but throughout the entire biography it's tiger will never leave behind competition he'll never leave behind any chance to glorify himself but at the end of the day it doesn't matter if you are his swing coach who by the way he goes through three of them in this book it doesn't matter if you're his dad when he buries his dad uh, and it doesn't matter if you're the first love of his life if you are not benefiting tiger on the golf course or financially for most of his life, he was 100% okay with walking away from you. And that is something I never understood about Tiger. And I don't really understand why, but it was so interesting as we learn about all of his escapades later on and how he can't stay faithful to his family. Uh, And it it just starts to make a little more sense that it is all expendable to Tiger. It, It is all for the glory of Tiger on the golf course. Yeah, I think that's spot on, and a, a, that's a, that's good of you to highlight that vignette because I think it does highlight just how emotionally distant and alienated Tiger often found himself. I think we see a picture of Josh, like you said, a broken man, in part or or maybe due to the fact that this man seemed entirely incapable of having healthy human relationships. Yeah, and I think too one thing I would want to point out is that you touched on Peter was that. You know, I think you think we think a lot about 
Earl, Tiger's dad, when we think about Tiger. But it was really interesting reading about his mom in this as well, because a lot of the influence that he had in terms of not having a lot of close relationships, I think, came from his mom. There was there were a couple points in the book where the authors pointed out that that his mom really didn't have a lot of close friends, and she sort of passed that along to Tiger as well. And I think that was a huge influence on him as well. Zach, did you have a favorite anecdote or vignette from the book? I I did. I had lots of favorites, uh, but I'll just narrow it down to this one. We haven't talked at all about the Navy SEAL training. And yeah, I, that, I, was, that was bizarre. It was super bizarre. Yeah, it was crazy. And for our listeners who haven't read the book, uh, this was this was totally news to me. But there was there was an extended period of time where Tiger Woods was very interested in doing advanced military training with military special operators, particularly Navy SEALs, um, and traveled to Mexico with them. And they let him uh, strap up with them and run through some uh, live fire drills and practice clearing houses and things like this. And and this was well, let me back up a little bit. The reason I wanted to bring up this vignette is because I think it highlights some some problematic relationships that Tiger was dealing with throughout his life, in particular, his father. He, um, the, the authors highlight that basically around the year 2000, Tiger started to get a little more distant from his father. And his father was just sort of descending into um, this. Uh, the, the, the authors quote a former employee saying that his house was a house of horrors. Or they, they say uh, like pornography was playing steadily on the television. He hired a bunch of assistants to uh, give him sexual favors. And he had totally stopped trying to camouflage the fact that he was going after other women, even while still married to Coltita. And Tiger had just grown weary of his father's antics, I think, as the authors say in the book. And uh, by 2006, when Earl finally passed away from a host of cardiac problems and and cancer, uh, Tiger dealt with this grief by going and training with the Navy SEALs. And this is uh, at the peak of his golf career. He he started his world record. Uh, world number one golf streak for 281 consecutive weeks in 2005 and so 2006 may 2006 he was still kind of at the at the peak of that and here he takes a few weeks off to go train with navy seals he already is having uh, leg and knee problems and the navy seals of course are not going to help him with that with all the rough training he was doing with them including parachuting in a couple of instances Um, and he starts talking to his golf coach about the possibility of being a navy seal and he's spending a lot of time playing video games, first person shooters, things like that. Um, and his his golf coach starts texting people and saying, like, we got to get we got to get Tiger right in the head because this Navy SEAL stuff is ridiculous. Um, and I think this highlights, again, the fragile psyche of this guy who was was chasing this uh, endless goal and was always trying to be the best and was in pursuit of perfection in this sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, Sisyphean way, basically, um, always pushing the boulder up the mountain. Well, and it's so interesting because they're pretty sure that that SEAL training really added to Tiger's injuries. Exactly. Who's followed Tiger knows that he's hurt so often. So it's so fascinating. This is kind of the one break in his life where he sacrificed golf for something else. And he really sacrificed golf in the long run. It's, it's just so fascinating that, that that was the one thing he was willing to turn it off for. And it probably shortened his golf career by Four to five years. Right. And this was, uh, I didn't mention, this is two weeks before the U.S. Open in 2006. So again, at the peak of his career, he's doing these things that are damaging his body in a way that he he had to have known uh, that 
would have lasting effects. But here he is training away with the Navy SEALs and entertaining the idea of joining up with them when he's 30 years old. It's crazy. I wonder if his ego was so big in, in 04, 05, 06 when he was winning so much. And I mean, he was he was he was the world's greatest golfer. There's there's no question about it during that time. But you almost wonder if he thought, well, I'm so much better. I can still bounce back. It won't affect me. I can do whatever I want, which I think is kind of the tiger mantra throughout the book. Um, it's I, this this might be the height of his ego that he is now trying to to compensate as his father is dying to make sure that that ego stays as as big as it is now without his quote unquote biggest supporter and Earl passing away. Yeah, that's an interesting read. I was wondering if he saw his biggest supporter, the man who had promised him that he would be basically the savior, right? He's going to revolutionize everything, including race relations, I think was the quote that Earl Woods gave to a reporter when Tiger was five years old. And he watched this man descend into a life of complete disorder and eventually die. And Tiger's sitting there now, the best golfer in the world. He's achieved everything that his father said he would achieve. And he probably still feels very empty for it. And he just watched his father die. So what does he do? He heads off to the mountains of Mexico to train with Navy SEALs and see if maybe this, this will finally give him the meaning that he's looking for. I actually, I, I, I read that similarly, Zach, but I also read it as just another example of what becomes very evident is Tiger's addictive personality. You know, he later in the book, they talk a lot about his addiction to sex yeah. and how he has multiple partners. And I think this is just another example and, and maybe a little foreshadowing for what we'll see later. And, you know, this leads into the, the next discussion point that I think we wanted to touch on, which is, you know, looking at if, is there a single flaw in, in Tiger Woods's approach, whether it's to golf or, or life in general. And I can kick this off by saying that, yeah. that what I think is that this constant desire to strive for perfection is really the biggest flaw in in his approach, both in golf and in life. And I think that, you know, you just see that time and time again, he's never satisfied with his game. He's winning tournaments left and right, and he gets a new swing coach. He he revamps his swing entirely. He changes coaches. He changes agencies. He didn't feel satisfied later in life with his wife or his family. You know, you see that in, in the multiple affairs that he had. And I think that this idea that he had to be perfect was his downfall. And there's this quote that I really love uh, that, I, that I use a lot in my own life and my own work is uh, the, the paraphrased version is that perfection is the enemy of good enough. And I think that oftentimes we get stuck thinking, how can I make this perfect? I can't, I can't put out this, you know, I can't turn in my assignment until it's perfect. I can't finish this project until it's perfect. When really, you're probably the only one who knows it's not perfect and it's probably good enough for 99% of the people who are going to see this or interact with whatever it is you're talking about. And I think that, you know, Tiger Woods always wanted to be perfect and he's not, you know, he's human and it's just not possible. But I think to your point, he, when he ha felt like he'd accomplished what he could in golf, even though he would go on to do a little bit more, you know, he tried something else. He tried to push himself and, and it's both representative of his desire for perfection and his addictive personality. All right. So you're, you're highlighting his, his basically pathology towards addiction as the key yeah. part of his downfall. 
Yeah, and 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 but also that that I think part of that was the this addiction to being perfect that was that was instilled in him from okay, a young age. Yeah, yeah. But both by his, by his dad and then by all of the external pressures from you know people that he played with in college to uh, agents that he he met or, and worked with. So yes, I think that his his yes, I think you're right. But but in addition to that, the idea that he was kind of addicted to being perfect, yeah, which is impossible. And Pete, you mentioned before his ego. Do you think that's the? Will you identify that as his sort of fatal flaw? Uh, absolutely. So the the exact word that I wanted to use was was vanity on this one. Because the, the way it comes to me is, is yeah, it's, it's a lot of ego driving. But you know how when, and, and we're all fathers here, and I'm sure everyone at home heard my son stop in about 15 minutes ago. Um, but we all have that, that moment with little kids where everything is about them, as it should be. Um, but for a lot of us, as these kids become toddlers and then young adults and keep growing, slowly but surely, we kind of pull back and we let them try to figure things out for themselves, that, that we can't do everything for them. And, and the way that I read Tiger throughout this entire book is really Tiger never grew up from being the two-year-old who was on TV, who his dad said was going to change the game of golf, change race relations around the world, as we already mentioned. Uh, and it's, it's just the vanity that throughout his entire life up till, uh, I would honestly argue up until probably... Uh, his his issues with opioids in the last year and a half, where we've really started to see this transformation recently. Uh, but until then, for Tiger, it's always been the world is a machine that is working for him. I think he's been enabled by all of his corporate sponsors. I think he was enabled by his parents. I think he was enabled by the caddies who knew things were going on. And again, the managers who knew that he was not being faithful to his wife and his family who was willing to look past the lying and the the questionable ethical behavior uh that it's just it was always it's okay we're gonna work for you because you're the winner here uh, and i i think that uh as as much as i, I want to blame tiger for this you have to blame the inner circle around him just as much that it was it was a money pit it was a glory pit it was it was just all of these things that no one was willing to tell tiger that he wasn't the most important thing in the room at all times and again you look at the conversations and how he treats people how he talks to people the mannerisms during business meetings where he has his feet on the table while people are trying to talk about important things. It's just, it was always all about Tiger in Tiger's head, but also in reality. And, and that just drove this incredible level of vanity that uh, it, it reads like something from another, another time. Doesn't it like, can, oh, yeah, it, it just totally. doesn't make sense in, in the, the late nineties, two thousands for us to revolve around someone so much. It's, it's like an emperor's new clothes where no one is willing to tell tiger that no, it's, it's not always about you, but to, to go back to my earlier points about how he left girlfriends and, and how he treated the people around him. It was just, it, it was fascinating to me. And I, I know it sounds like I'm just incredibly down on tiger, but let me tell anyone listening to it. This is the most interesting case study on the human psyche uh, I have ever come across. It's not something I'm a connoisseur of, but it was it was the quickest 400 pages I, I can ever remember reading in all seriousness. Yeah, totally like, agree. It, it was just so interesting. And I, I like that you highlighted Vanity. You know, fittingly, perhaps, a lot of Tiger Woods' infidelity is highlighted in the two-part Vanity Fair series. So it's in Vanity Fair, which is why I said fittingly. <laughs> and the piece is called, or the two-part series is called The Temptation of Tiger Woods. And I think it's actually a perfect illustration of some of the things you're talking about, Pete, 
because the way that he treated the women in his life, this is, of course, long before the Me Too movement, but it is it is right in line with what the Me Too movement has exposed, that he was a man in power who treated women like his pawns that were to be used. And to him, the women were there to serve him and to service him. Um, and that's that's evident from these very tawdry details of a lot of these encounters and how he would you know, drive for for quick hookups with the the waitress at the town where he lived in Florida. When his wife was in his home, he would go and have sex with a a this woman in his Escalade in his car. Um, when he went to Vegas, he would meet up with you know any number of nightclub managers or porn stars or whatever to have hookups with them. And this this was a man like you said, Pete, whose universe was revolving around him, and who was clearly under the impression that everyone existed to serve him. And I think the I think the vanity was certainly bad. Um, I want to highlight one more uh, one more thing that I would suggest was a vice of Tiger's, and that is uh, intemperance. Um, you know, temperance being one of the classical virtues, sort of moderation. And I think, Josh, this kind of goes back to your point about the sort of ad- addiction to perfection. But I think we see in Tiger someone who was incapable of moderating his own life. He was incapable of scaling back his obsession with video games when he was trying to become a or thinking about becoming a navy seal he was unable to have genuine balance in his life when he was trying to juggle a a relationship in golf his relationships like you pointed out pete ended because of his obsession with golf and his inability to reconcile those two um he was not able to have a healthy sexual relationship with his wife because he let his sex addiction get way out of control um he let his his desire to be the best in golf ruin one by one almost every single close relationship that he had. And and we see that time and time again throughout the book. Like you said, Pete, three different golf coaches. We see girlfriends come and go and and that's not even counting the string of mistresses that that he had later on. Um, close friends from college, high school that get just cut out of the the circle because it's time for Tiger to focus on golf and and fix his swing or um, cut out the distractions, whatever the case is. But I see a man who is just incapable of having essentially self-control and being able to apply moderation and maintain balance in his life. And I think that speaks to, uh, again, a, a crucial part of being human, right? To be human is to uh, to be able to have balance in life and to not have your goals so singularly one-dimensional. Um, so I think that's that's another key part of the downfall, the flaw that we need to talk about. What do you guys think of that? Well, I think, doesn't it seem to you all that, that it's really all interconnected? You know, all of these, yeah. you know, we, we've each picked out a couple, you know, single flaws here and there. But, but to me, they're all connected in, in, the, in the sense that, Zach, you were talking about he didn't have any self-control. And, and Pete, you were talking about how people just enabled him to do whatever he wanted. I mean, those, those two things go hand in hand. You know, if you, you don't have self-control because you have this leash that people, you know, this never ending leash that, that people, they just let you pull and pull and pull on it. And even with his agent, even with the, you know, his, his corporate sponsors at Nike, you know, all these people knew about various aspects of his life that were, that were really toxic, but no one did anything. Right. They just let him let Tiger be Tiger. And, and to the point where one of his friends from high school, Byron Bell, not just knew about knew about some of these things. He enabled it. You know, yeah, he was absolutely. the one coordinating for Tiger to have these meetups with these random women. 
you know, behind his wife's back. Right. And, and to me, it's just, we can pick out in, you know, individual flaws, but to me, they're all connected in, in the sense that without one, you might not have the other. And what it really makes me think about is should the blame be entirely on Tiger Woods or do we need to talk a little bit about how he was influenced from an early age by his father and mother and the people around him? Thanks so much for listening to the Tiger Woods conversation. Part one, part two is the very next episode on this podcast feed. So go ahead and listen to that. You can find that uh, also on third string. If you're listening to this on the vernacular feed or on vernacular if you're listening to this on the third string feed.